Uh, Let's pray together. Father, we've just sung of how your word is forever settled in the heavens. And your word and your works remain unmoved forever. And so, Father, we praise you that you are the eternal God and that everything you've said is perfect and everything that you have done and will ever do is all perfect as well. And we pray that as we come to focus on some of these things this morning that you would graciously help me and help all of us as we grapple with these truths. And we pray that you would shape us to live lives of obedience before you for all of our days and to trust you for life and indeed for eternity because we prayed all in the name of your Son and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I wonder if you're the kind of person who enjoys science fiction. It's not really my cup of tea, to be honest, but one thing that seems to crop up very regularly in science fiction novels or films or television programs is the idea of time travel. Whether it's H.G. Wells' novel, The Time Machine, or Doctor Who with his TARDIS, or even Marty McFly and the flux capacitor, we have this fascination, don't we, with time. We're fascinated with the idea that somehow we could discover a way of stepping outside of the constraints of time and manipulate time for our own purposes, whatever those purposes may be. Wouldn't it be amazing to turn the tables and instead of time being our master, time instead being our servant, we could pause it if we wanted something to last for longer. Or we could fast forward if we wanted to get through something that's difficult or unpleasant. Or we could rewind our time if we wanted to go back and clean up mistakes that we have made. But of course that will all remain science fiction, won't it? There is no escaping the reality of time. Time that marches on second by relentless second. And here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the teacher wants to talk to us about time. Now there's a lot in this chapter and in our time this morning. uh, We won't have the opportunity to unpack everything in detail. But as we survey the chapter this morning, we will see that there are, I think, two central points that the teacher wants us to understand about time. And then flowing from those two main points, we'll see that there are a few applications that we can take away and apply in our own lives. So to start with, here's the main, or the first main point that the teacher wants us to grasp as we think about this concept of time. The point is this, as creatures, we live within time. As creatures, we live within time. And that's what the the teacher wants us to grasp as he writes this beautiful poem 
all about time. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's often read at funerals and such occasions. And it is a beautifully poetic description of our creaturely experience of time. The poem ebbs and flows like time itself. There is a time for this. There's a time for that. There's a time for another thing. There's a time for everything, says the teacher. As creatures, our whole existence plays out within this realm of time. And I'd like to point out four ways in which the poetry of these lines captures for us something of our experience of time. So firstly, our experience of time is comprehensive. That's how the teacher introduces this poem, isn't it? For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. He's saying to us everything that we ever experience is all within the realm of time. And nothing that we ever experience is outside the realm of time. Whatever you experience in life, you will experience it at a particular time and it cannot be any other way. Your experience of time is absolutely comprehensive. It encapsulates everything of our existence. And then the, the comprehensiveness of our experience of time is presented to us with all these different opposites that the teacher describes. That use of opposites is a, a literary device, really, where two different extremes as a way of embracing everything that lies between those two extremes. So we might say there's a time to mourn, and there is a time to dance, and there is a time for everything that is between those two experiences as well. There's a time to love, there's a time to hate, and there's a time for everything in between those two things as well. The teacher wants us to see that all of life, in all of its in all of its experiences, is all marked by different times and different seasons. And it's for that reason that the very first couplet that the teacher mentions, do you notice, is the most comprehensive of all, isn't it? A time to be born and a time to die. You cannot get any more comprehensive than that, can you? Our experience of time is comprehensive. Because our entire life plays out within this realm of time. Every experience that we have taking place at its own particular moment in time. And then secondly, our experience of time is also complex. Just look at all the different things that the teacher mentions in this poem. These 14 different couplets, 28 different activities in total. And you'll see that there is a real mixture of experiences mentioned here. Some of the times are good. Some of the times are bad. So for example, we can say that a time of peace is good. And a time of war is, of course, bad. And some times of life are positive and some times of life are negative. So the time that we spend laughing with our friends is a, a positive experience. 
Whereas the time that we spend weeping at some sad news that we've heard is a, a negative experience. It's not bad in the sense that it's evil, but it is a negative experience. And then furthermore, some times of life are neither good nor bad, neither positive nor negative. They're ambiguous. For example, verse 5, at certain times it's right to embrace a loved one. At other times, it is the right thing to refrain from doing so and, and to allow them to have some space. It's ambiguous, isn't it? At certain times, verse 7, it's right to say something. And yet at other times, it's right to remain silent. Life can be ambiguous like that. It requires wisdom to know what kind of behavior is called for in a particular moment and in a particular situation. Our experience of different times is complex, isn't it? Good days and bad days, positive experiences, negative experiences, and things that are just so ambiguous that we don't quite know how to respond on those occasions and in those times. And then related to this idea of complexity is the fact that our experience of time is also confusing. So just cast your eye over this poem and try as you might, you cannot find any order to it. And that is deliberate because it is true of our experience of time. How we would love to be able to control the time that we have in life. To arrange it all very neatly so that we knew exactly what was going to come next. And I don't know how you might manage things, but maybe you might want to consolidate all of your sadness and all of your grief into just one year. Just get it all over and done with. And then having done so, you could spread out evenly all of your happiness over your remaining years. Or you might want to devote a, a certain period of your life, maybe six months or so, given to a particular project and give all of your time to that 24-7. No distractions, no constraints upon your time. No need to sleep, no need to stop, no need to rest. Just giving all of your attention for that time to a particular thing. And of course our experience of time is nothing like that, is it? We never know what's round the corner. Things come along, things take us by surprise. We make plans and those plans are always subject to change because you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. And you see, you get a sense of that as you read this poem, don't you? You never know what the next line is going to be. And it is a confusing poem in that sense, and it is deliberately so. It's not a logical flow of neatly organized thought. No, it's a befuddling assortment of all different things happening at different times, and appearing unexpectedly, and as it were, jostling with one another for position, and then disappearing again. Notice that even within the couplets there's confusion in the sense that sometimes it's the positive thing that is mentioned first and the negative thing that is mentioned second and then the next couplet takes you by surprise and the order is reversed. Because who really knows whether the next thing is going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Who knows if tomorrow is going to be a good day or a bad day? Our experience of time is confusing. And finally, under this first heading, our experience of time is also communal. By which I mean that our times, the days of our lives, are experienced to a great degree through relationships with those around us. 
And so just look at all the different items, the 14 couplets, the 28 items in this poem, and notice that at least half of them are somehow related to relationships with other people. Loving someone or hating them. Dancing with someone at a wedding and then mourning them at their funeral. So much of our experience of time is shaped by the relationships that we have with others at that particular time. At a certain time in life you are a son or a daughter Maybe at a certain time in life, you're also a brother or a sister. And then as time progresses, your relationships change, don't they? New relationships start, and some of the old relationships come to an end, be that through distance, divergence, disagreement, or death. You become a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You become a fiancé. You become a, a husband or wife. You become a father or mother. You become a grandfather or a grandmother. And then finally you become a widow or a widower. And you see our experience is to a great degree shaped by the relationships that we find ourselves in throughout time. As loved ones come and loved ones go. Relationships come and relationships go. This is our experience of time, isn't it? It's comprehensive, it's complex, it's confusing, and it's communal. Time encapsulates all of life in all of its complexity, with all of its surprise, and all of its relationships. And this discussion of our creaturely experience of time, it leads the teacher to two conclusions about it which we find in verses 9 to 13. His first conclusion is this, our experience of time means that gain is impossible. Gain is impossible. So the teacher says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And due to this unstoppable march of time, everything you work to accomplish Everything you accumulate in this life is going to slip through your fingers eventually. There is no lasting gain, says the teacher. You can have a great career. You can have great accomplishments. You can have many achievements that you're rightly proud of. And yet the time will come when those things are snatched away from you sooner or later. This is what the teacher realized back in chapter 2, verse 18, wasn't it? I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. There is a time for getting an education. There's a time for learning a trade. There's a time for gaining new skills. There's a time for pursuing your chosen career. There's a time for being successful. The time for enjoying the rewards of that. But there is also a time for your abilities to diminish. A time for your skills to become dull. A time for you to be forced into retirement. A time for you to be replaced at work by a bright young thing. A time for you to grow old. And eventually a time for you to die. 
The teacher's not being depressing here, but he's telling us it like it is. Time makes gain impossible. As creatures, we live within And so our experience of life here under the sun is that things come and things go, and lasting gain is impossible for us here. That's the first conclusion. The second conclusion is that our experience of time makes us long for eternity. And that's what we find in verse 11, where the teacher says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, the teacher is saying, we have this God-given sense that the here and now is not all there is. We have the sense of eternity within our hearts. As human beings made in God's image, we can understand that the past is something that's already happened. The present is what's happening now. The future is yet to come. And that there is an eternity stretching out ahead of us. So we don't just live in the moment, so to speak. We sense that there is more to our existence than this, than the here and now. Eternity is set in our hearts. And yet, even though it is set there, the teacher tells us we cannot see the full picture of eternity, can we? We can't recreate the things that have already happened in the past. We can't bring them back into our present. They are now a slowly fading memory to us. We can't predict what the future has in store. We have eternity in our hearts, but not in such a way that we've figured it all out. And as creatures, we live within time, and yet we long for eternity. And we're fascinated with this idea that we could somehow step out of the constraints of time and we could see all of eternity all at once and figure it all out. Know the end from the beginning. But who really is like that? And that, of course, brings us to the second main point that a teacher wants us to grasp in this discussion of time. So far we've seen that as creatures we live within time. And then secondly, notice this, that as creator, God exists above time. As creator, God exists above time. That's what we mean when we say that God is eternal. That phrase doesn't mean that God is very, very old because he's, he's always been around forever. Now, that would put God within time, wouldn't it, to think of him in those terms. Now, God's eternality means that he exists outside of and above time itself. Time is a created thing. God is not inside it. As creatures, we live inside time, but as creator God, he exists above it. And notice that there's two ways in which the teacher describes this eternality of God, the fact that he is above time. First of all, notice that God rules over time. That's at the start of verse 11. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Which is to say that he is the one who governs the times and the seasons that we as creatures experience. All of those different, complex, confusing experiences that are described in verses 1 to 8. God is in control over all of them. 
In Psalm 139, David writes, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every day of David's life, he says, God had planned it out in advance. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And in Acts chapter 17, whilst he's preaching in Athens, Paul says that God is the one who determines the allotted periods in which all of mankind would live. He rules over time. He makes everything beautiful in its time. He's never late with anything. He's never rushed. He's never behind schedule. He's never too early with anything. He rules over time and he does so perfectly. And secondly, notice that God is not constrained by time. God is unconstrained by time. That's in verse 14. The teacher says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. Now as verse 9 has already told us, the work that we do here on earth doesn't last forever. It doesn't give us any lasting gain. Our work, our achievements are temporary under the sun. And our work, for that reason, could always be added to. That essay that you're working on, or that exam that you're revising for, you could always do another hour of study. And it would improve things, wouldn't it? Or you could always spend another hour in the office. You could always spend another hour out on the farm and you could get just a bit more work done. And the teacher says, actually, nobody's work is ever done. You can always add to it. There's always more that you could be doing. If only you had more time. And our work can be taken away from. Because given enough time, the things that we've worked so hard for will fall apart before our very eyes if we live long enough. You can work hard at, at building a house and it can be destroyed by a fire within a week. The work that we do can be taken away from it. It's transient, it's passing. And yet you see, God's work is unconstrained by time because of the fact that he exists above it. And therefore what he does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. God is not a creature, and therefore he does not think to himself, if only I had more time, I could have got more done. I could have created a few more planets and stars. If only I had more time on my hands, then the works of providence would be more perfect, more detailed, more complete. Or if only I had more time, the work of redemption would have been more perfect. If only I had more time, I could save more people. No, the works of God are unconstrained by time. You can never add to them, even with all the time in the world. And nor can you take away from God's work. Time will never undo what God has done. What he does endures forever. The blood of Christ which was shed at Calvary, secured the redemption of some people who were alive before then, some people who were alive at that very moment, and many people like us who were not yet born. And a million years from now, the blood of Christ will be no less 
effective in the salvation of you and me. Do you see, nothing, not even time itself, can take away from what God has done. So these are the two central points that the teacher wants us to understand as we consider time. Firstly, as creatures, we exist within time. But secondly, as creator, God exists above time. And so for us, our experience of time is this comprehensive, complex, confusing, communal experience. Our experience of time means that lasting gain here on earth is impossible for us and our hearts yearn for eternity. But for God who exists above time, he rules over it and he is unconstrained by it. Now if those are the two main things that we need to understand regarding time, what are the applications of all of this. So maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, this discussion of time and anthropology and theology is all very interesting, all very mind-stretching. But is it very practical? How does this exploration of time, time in relation to man and God, how does it impact the way that I'm going to live this week? What is the cash value of this? And the teacher wants us to know that in actual fact, this is all intensely practical. And understanding these truths about time and about mankind and about God will change the way you live your life every day. And maybe you noticed as we read the chapter earlier on that in the course of this chapter, the teacher points out a number of applications from time to time that he wants us to take away from his teaching. And first and foremost, the application is this. Fear God. Fear God. That's in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor, taken, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now, to fear God doesn't mean to be frightened of him. To fear God means to revere him and to worship him and to adore him as God and as your God it means to humble yourself before him because he is the creature. You exist within this thing called time which you can never escape from and you can never control and you can never manipulate. But God is the creator of time itself. He is the eternal one, the ancient of days. He rules over time and he is unconstrained by it. He's the one who makes things beautiful in their time. He allotted all the, the set periods of your life. The day that you would be born, the day that you're going to die. Before you were born, he had planned out every moment of your earthly existence. And everything that happens to you throughout your span of life, he is ultimately in control of it, whether tomorrow is a good day or a bad day a positive day or a negative day, or an ambiguous, confusing sort of day. He is the Lord over today and tomorrow and all of eternity. And you see, the first and the most important application of this exploration of time is simply that you humble yourself in reverent, adoring fear before the God who rules over time and in whose hands are all of your days. And the second application is this, simply to enjoy God's gifts in the present. 
Enjoy God's gifts in the present. That's in verses 12 and 13. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now I'm not going to spend long here because you've probably already noticed that this is almost exactly the same as chapter 2 verses 24 and 25. And so last week's sermon dealt, uh, dealt with this uh, um, topic. But again, the same point resurfaces here, doesn't it? That since we live within this realm of time, where things come and things go, and nothing here on earth under the sun and creation really lasts, it is therefore utterly futile to look at the things of this world and think that they can give you lasting satisfaction and fulfillment. Of course they can't. And so don't make the fatal mistake of entering into a relationship of need with these things as if they are the things that are going to save you and satisfy you. And yet the teacher is telling us here again that escaping from that relationship of need towards the things of this world does not mean that you enter into a, re a relationship of rejection of them either. Because as Paul says to Timothy, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Because it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so instead we enter into a relationship of enjoyment. Of things for our enjoyment. See them as gifts from him. Yes, they are temporary, the transient gifts. But nonetheless, they are given for our enjoyment. The, cre the creator's instruction is this. As you pass through time, enjoy his gifts in the present. That is what they're there for. Receive them with thanksgiving. Enjoy the things that God has given to us. And then thirdly, be comforted by the knowledge of God's judgment in the future. Be comforted by the knowledge of God's judgment in the future. And when we look at the world in which we live, we see wickedness, we see injustice, we see sin, even in the places where there is meant to be righteousness and justice. And in this life, these wicked things happen, and very often they go unnoticed. They're forgotten. People seem to get away with these things. We see that in the news, don't we? How difficult it is to secure a conviction for historical offences. Because with the passing of time, things get forgotten. Evil is committed and people get away with it. And yet, the fact that God is above time, the fact that God is unconstrained by it, comforts us with the knowledge that justice will still be done. God has not forgotten about what happened in the past. He's not forgotten about the Holocaust or any other evil that has taken place within history. And that's the comfort that the teacher holds out to us in verses 16 and 17, isn't it? That God's perfect view of time means that no sin will go unpunished. He hasn't forgotten about these things. And his knowledge of those things is not constrained by the passing of time. And one day the time will come for judgment, the teacher says.
Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. In other words, there's a time for justice to be done as well. And therefore, when we see sin and evil taking place in the world around us, and when we suffer from that ourselves, and when people seem to get away with it, and when evil is brushed under the carpet and forgotten about, it is a comfort to know, isn't it, that in his time, God will bring about perfect justice when Christ returns. And then the fourth and the final application is this. Face up to your own mortality. Face up to your own mortality. And that's the focus of verse 18 through to the end of the chapter. The teacher says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. It is a humbling verse, isn't it? We like to think that we're great. We're unstoppable. We kid ourselves into thinking that we don't need to think about death. We put it to the back of our minds. And the teacher says to us that in one sense, we are actually just like the beasts. Because after enough time, we will die just like they will. It is literally just a matter of time. And so the teacher says, face up to your own mortality. That's what you're to learn from time. Face up to your own mortality. That's what we heard in the opening psalm of our service, wasn't it? Psalm 90. Moses writes, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Time teaches us to face up to our own mortality. And of course, doing that brings us back to the first application all over again, doesn't it? Do you fear God? Have you humbled yourself before God in repentance from sin and self-abandoning trust in Jesus Christ? Do you trust Jesus with your life and with your death and with your eternity so that God's future judgment holds no terrors for you? And everlasting life is yours in him. Well, if not, come to Jesus whilst you've still got time. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you because you are the eternal, infinite, unchanging God. You're the ruler of all things. You are the Lord of time itself. You exist over and above all of creation. You're unconstrained by it. And you rule over time itself. All of our days are in your hands. And what you do lasts forever. And in these ways we confess that we are completely different to you. Because we exist as mere creatures. We exist within this realm of space and time. And our hearts yearn for eternity, and yet we cannot comprehend it fully. And so we pray that you would help us to respond to these truths about time in the right way. Help us to fear you rightly. 
humbling ourselves before you in worship and adoration for who you are. Help us to receive with thankfulness the good gifts that you provide us with and to enjoy them in the way that you intend. Comfort us whenever we suffer injustice with the knowledge that one day all the sins of all of history will be called into account and justice will be done perfectly and eternally. And in light of that day, help us to accept our own mortality. Help us to accept that our life here is relatively brief and it will soon be gone. But that through trusting in Jesus, eternal life with him can be ours. Our Father, we pray all of these things in his strong and precious name. Amen.